The Genesis record is God's detailed account of man's origins and early earth history, from creation to the fall to the flood and through the beginning generations of the new Hebrew nation. The book of Genesis is truly the book of beginnings. Welcome to this broadcast of Science, Scripture, and Salvation from the Institute for Creation Research. This month we are airing three special broadcasts featuring the teaching ministry of ICR's founder, Dr. Henry Morris. Today we continue with part two of The Book of Beginnings. Just in case you're too much impressed with the scientific knowledge of the day, let me just give you a few quotations, not from the Word of God now, but from the words of some of these leading scientists. They don't really know these things that many people think they know. For example, take the origin of the universe. How did it come to be? Well, the idea now, it's going through different theories, of course, but the current theory is, is tied up with the Big Bang. Now, many people are beginning to reject that. Many astronomers are, but probably the majority still believe it. But the Big Bang had to be preceded by something else, and so the idea now is that there was a fluctuation of nothing into something. This is from Dr. Tryon. He says, So I conjectured that the universe had its physical origin as a quantum fluctuation of some pre-existing true vacuum or state of nothingness. And here's what Dr. James Treffel says about it. He calls this the accidental universe. He says, In this picture, the universe came into existence as a fluctuation in the quantum mechanical vacuum. Such a hypothesis leads to a view of creation in which the entire universe is an accident. In Tyron's words, words one, our universe is simply one of those things that happen from time to time. And then Tyron himself says, in this scenario, the hot big bang was preceded by a cold big whoosh, so <laughs> somehow there was nothing, but then there was a whoosh and there was something, and the universe expanded to the size of a grapefruit, or maybe much bigger than that, in about a very infinitesimal fraction of a fraction of a second. And then it got hot and became the hot big bang, which then evolved into galaxies and stars and so forth, finally into people. And the first thing that evolved out of that was hydrogen gas. And then that evolved into helium, and then some of it into lithium, maybe. But you couldn't get the higher elements without the stars being formed, and then they had to explode in order to form the higher elements. There's all kinds of marvelous theories. But they don't know any of this. This is just speculation based on mathematics and the attempt to try to explain things without God and without creation. And let me read what a, a professor of astronomy at Arizona State says, Dr. Windhorst says, nobody really understands how star formation proceeds. It's really remarkable. Nobody knows, but we know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it was. And with respect to the origin of life, well, you know, these theories about the origin of life in a test tube, some biochemists get in a laboratory and they mix some ammonia and nitrogen and so forth and put some electrical discharges on it, and all of a sudden they're amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. No, <laughs> not necessarily so. More than th this is from Dr. Uh, Klaus Dose, who is head of the uh, Bio Institute for Biochemistry at the Gutenberg University in West Germany, uh, a top authority in this field. He says, more than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution have led to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on Earth rather than to its solution. At present, all discussions on principal theories and experiments in the field either end in stalemate or in a confession of ignorance. They don't know how life began either. We do. God created every life, the Bible says. Charles Darwin, 150 or so years ago, 135 years or so, wrote his famous book, The Origin of Species by Natural Selection. And so that was supposed to have solved how species came into existence by process of evolution through natural selection. 
Well, let me read what the professor of biology and head, dean of the graduate school at Yale University says about that. And this was an article written against our creation movement. But he said this, Today we are less confident, and the whole subject is in the most exciting ferment. Evolution is both troubled from without by the nagging insistence of anti-scientists. That means us, the creationists. And nagged from within by the troubling complexities of genetic and developmental mechanisms and new questions about the central mystery, speciation itself. The central mystery of life is how a new species forms, speciation. No, they don't know how that does either. Men have been working in their laboratories ever since Darwin, thousands of scientists, millions of dollars of equipment and so forth, trying to find some means of producing evolution. Nobody's ever seen anything evolved in all human history, from one kind into a higher kind. Nobody knows how it works. Nobody's ever seen it happen. Yet they say you've got to believe it because it happened. It's true. That's what they teach our young folks in schools. Now, as far as human life is concerned, we have all these theories about the origin of some monkey back in uh, Asia, which became an ape-man sort of thing, or man-ape in Africa, and then developed into a, a higher form of a primitive man and finding a modern man over some million years or so. But let me read what a couple of uh, prominent anthropologists, who are evolutionists, say. Anatomy in the fossil record cannot be relied upon for defining evolutionary lineages. The fossil record is where you find these bones of these ape men. They say you can't rely on that to determine evolution. He says a subjective element in this approach to building evolutionary trees, which many paleontologists advocate with almost religious fervor, is demonstrated by the outcome there is no single family tree on which they agree. They don't know. On the contrary, almost every conceivable combination and permutation of living and extinct, extinct hominoids has been proposed by one cladist or another. Everybody has his own different theory about the origin of man as well as the other things. Here's what another one says. Nature magazine, just uh, 1990, fairly recently. Paleoanthropologists seem to make up for a lack of fossils with an excess of fury. And this must now be the only science in which it's still possible to become famous just by having an opinion. As one cynic says, in human paleontology, the consensus depends on who shouts the loudest. Then I thought this was an interesting statement that same man made. Remember, all of these men I've been quoting are convinced evolutionists, and as far as I know, they're all atheists. They do not believe in God or creation in any sense. And so they're just speaking within their family. They don't know that us creations are going to read what they say, I think. Uh, well, I should mention that because the fossils don't give a clear picture of the origin of human life, therefore many modern people, including some of those I quoted, are going to the, uh, to the genes, and they say that because we have uh, similar DNA to the chimpanzee and so on like that, that therefore that proves we're related to the chimpanzee. Well, that's what he's talking about here. He says, what comes out of a genetic model often depends on what assumptions go in. To take an unusually rigorous view of molecular evolution, that of the creationist Dwayne Gish, the fact that man and watermelon are both 97% water does not necessarily mean that man and the watermelon have a common ancestor. <laughs> so you can prove anything by comparisons, of course. Dwayne, I've heard Dwayne use that in debates, and nobody has an answer to it. And I'll read just one more statement. This is from a, a Roman Catholic scientist, a very top scientist. He says, The fact remains that there exists to this day not a shred of bona fide scientific evidence in support of the thesis that macroevolutionary transformations have ever occurred. No, there is no scientific ev evidence for evolution, whatever, of the universe or of life or of the species or of, of man. There's no reason at all not to believe in the book of Genesis and the account of creation just as it's written there. And I trust you do that. Maybe if you haven't, why... I would encourage you to think seriously about it and to do a little studying on it. 
the evidence is overwhelmingly against any kind of an evolutionary theory. I've gone through the cycle. I was an evolutionist myself all through college. I became a creationist both through the study of the scriptures and through the study of evolutionary literature, which was so inadequate that that convinced me as much as anything else that evolution was false. Now, there's no other record of creation than what we have in the book of Genesis. If you want to know how things began, and we ought to know that because that depends, that con controls how things are going to be. If you want to know how things began, you have to go to the book of Genesis. It's interesting that in all the religions of the world, ancient or modern, you can go back to the ancient Greeks or the Babylonians or to the modern ethnic religions like Confucianism and Hinduism and so forth, there's not a single one of them that tells anything about the creation of the universe. They all start with the universe already in existence, the universe of space and time and matter. And then they talk about how the forces of nature, which are personified maybe in terms of different gods and goddesses, act upon these forces of nature, uh, upon these uh, basic uh, components of, of the universe, to develop them into higher forms, including finally living forms. They're all different forms of evolution. But only the book of Genesis deals with real creation, creation of the heavens and the earth and time, the creation of the universe. And so if you want to know about creation, you've got to go there. That's the only account anywhere of real creation. And it must be true because there's overwhelming evidence that there is a creator God. And if there is a creator, he is not a capricious God who just does things for fun. He has a purpose in what he does. He is omniscient. And therefore, he has a purpose in his creation. And he's going to tell us about it. And he has told us in the book of Genesis if we will simply believe what he says. And science, real science, will support that. For example... I'm going to tell you about the laws of thermodynamics. And uh, you'd have to pardon that uh, terminology if, if it bothers anybody. You know, my wife sometimes says you shouldn't use language like that in mixed company. That's scientists and people, you know, mixed company. <laughs> well, but thermodynamics is a perfectly good word. It comes from two Greek words, thermo, or heat, and dynamis, or power. Heat power is the idea of the science of heat power. And the laws of thermodynamics apply to all physical processes now, not just to heat processes. That was how they were discovered back in the first development of the steam engine, which began the Industrial Revolution in our modern scientific age. But now it's known they, they know they apply to all processes without any exception. And the first law of thermodynamics says that everything is now being conserved. It can change its forms. Energy can change its forms from one kind to another, but you cannot create energy nor annihilate energy. And the same applies to matter, because matter is a form of energy. So no creation is now taking place. That's scientific as well as biblical. The Bible says that God rested from all of his work, which he created. So no creation is taking place. And that's what the very first law, the best proved law that science has, says as well. But then there's a second law that says that what was created and is now being conserved is running down. It's becoming less useful, less available. Things get old, and they wear out, and they become disordered, maybe become extinct, may disintegrate. They will never automatically get bigger and better by themselves. So the universal laws of science are laws of conservation and disintegration. But the idea of evolution is that everything is, that these laws are, are laws of uh, innovation and integration, exactly the opposite. So the two laws of thermodynamics say that there's nothing in the present structure of physical processes that can create a universe, because there's nothing creative taking place in all the processes of nature, everything running in the other direction. And so therefore, the universe is running down, the whole universe is running down, finally will become dead if it keeps on going like this long enough. It will not become, it will not be annihilated because of the first law, which says everything is conserved, but the forms of energy are being changed into lower and lower levels 
Finally, uniform heat energy spread through space, the ultimate heat death of the universe, they have called it. If it goes on long enough, in time that will happen. It hasn't happened yet. We're anywhere, not anywhere near the death of the universe yet. But it will happen if it goes on like this long enough. And so since it hasn't happened, therefore time is not infinitely old. If time were infinitely old, infinite billions of years in the past, the universe would already be dead. Therefore time had a beginning, otherwise the universe would be dead. But the universe could not create itself because the present processes don't create anything. The only answer is that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the only account of creation is here in the book of Genesis. Understanding God's will for our lives begins with understanding God's word. And since God began with Genesis, the study of this book should be paramount to every believer. I'm glad you could join us for part two of The Book of Beginnings on Science, Scripture, and Salvation. ICR has been thinking about its roots in this ministry, which began 40 years ago, causing us to celebrate God's faithfulness to this work. And we're glad you're a part of what we do. But we need to hear from you to know that you value the broadcast of Science, Scripture, and Salvation each week. Give me a call at 800-337-0375 and let me know that you'd like ICR to keep airing Science, Scripture, and Salvation. Your donation will help ensure that this vital teaching ministry continues each week. In appreciation for your gift, I want to send you the book Exploring the Evidence for Creation by Dr. Henry Morris III. Call 800-337-0375 and mention the Exploring the Evidence radio offer along with the call letters of this station. Or write me at ICR Radio, Box 59029, Dallas, Texas 75229. That's ICR Radio, Box 59029, Dallas, Texas, 75229. To learn more about the ministry of ICR, visit icr.org. And thanks again for listening to Science, Scripture, and Salvation.